collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. everyone, and welcome to another episode of Collective Power. Our guest today is attorney Carla Cruel. Hi, Carla. Good morning. How are you? Hello, Rita. How are you? I'm good, and thank I you agree. for joining us. Yeah. You've been on the show before, so I feel a little bit more relaxed knowing that we've been through this a couple of times together. <laughs> So the theme of this month, the theme of the show, is that the system is all one. Like there's only one big system. And I invited you as a guest because I've seen from other conversations that we've had, you've really had a tremendous amount of experience across different systems and see how they're all connected. Mm -hmm. And then there's this article that we co-wrote and we're publishing that we just published so we'll talk a little bit about both of those things. But before we Great. dive in, tell me a story about yourself that has our listeners understand why this is important to you. I often do the speaking engagement. The title of it is called Hero Versus Partner. And I walk people through the process. Of, I feel like I'm stuck in between two worlds, right? So I am a black woman from West Philadelphia. I did not come from, I don't want to say that we were super poor because I know what that looks like. We weren't a middle-class family. Both of my parents worked two jobs, four of us living in the house. There were times when we had to get government assistance, et cetera, et cetera. My parents broke up when I was in elementary school. So I'm telling you my history on purpose. So throughout this process of like living in this circumstance where in America, you're like, oh, we have to fix you, right? Like there's something wrong. The fixers came in and they said, oh, she's a good one. She's a smart one. And so I had these different opportunities and I went to a, a middle school that was like a special program. If anybody has ever heard of a tracking system, I was a part of tracking and I went to an Academics Plus middle school. I went to a college preparatory high school, Philadelphia High School for Girls, Girls High, and then graduated from Drexel. So I have two parents who didn't go to college, and now I'm here with three degrees. So like, oh, she's a success story, right? But I started to notice that the more education I got, the further and further I got from my community, right? The very people who raised and loved and supported me it started to become more and more difficult to communicate with them. And this sort of came to a head while I was in law school. And that's when I really started to see the tension 
on a conscious level rather than a subconscious level of how the system is really designed to get the outcomes that we're actually getting. We say that we want to put good schools in poor neighborhoods and help people to do well, right? And, but we blame it on all of these other things. But then we put all of these hurdles in place. Some people can be successful, some people can't. So the reason why all this stuff matters to me is that I've watched people who are just as smart as me, whose lives went on completely different paths because someone didn't open the right door for them, right? And I think of the, all of the struggles that they go through versus the ease with which things were not as difficult for me because I was a chosen one. And then I'm in law school and I'm hearing liberty and justice for all. And like, we're trying to form this more perfect union. And I'm keep thinking like, where, when? So that's why it matters. Like I, I look at my family, I look at my friends, I look at my clients and I don't see what was on paper in law school did not match any of the reality I growing up. I know that was a long way of going around, but the reason it matters is that I feel like the heroes would say that they did a great job by saving me, but I feel like they didn't because what they really did was just pull me out of my community and let my community fail. Sorry, Rita's making a face right now. <laughs> Yeah, I so, am making a face. Well, because I was about to ask you to give an example of a way in which what you learned in law school didn't fit life. And then the last thing you said just really kind of just hit my heart, right? Like you watch the whole society fail, fail your community and your, and the people you love. Over so, and over and over again. So I'll give a very practical example of something that I'm from Pennsylvania. I'm a lawyer in Pennsylvania. While I was a law student, I did a field clinic where I was representing people for uh, protection from abuse orders and custody. Now, one of the things about being a law student is, of course, you have to actually learn the law because you don't know anything yet, right? So I'm reading through the family law statutes and I'm learning all of the, the basic concepts of what things are supposed to be and what the rules are. And on paper, from a very logical, fair perspective, I'm like, oh, this makes sense. In the case of custody, there used to be a rule where if a child was under a certain age and the parents were fighting, dad couldn't get custody because it was called the tender years doctrine. And so um, the child is of tender years, so they must be with their mother. So we progressed and we say, no, that's not fair. Both parents, both love their children, they should have this. So on paper, the tender years doctrine is no longer the rule of law. Okay, so then I walk into a courtroom to represent my client, who is a father, who is complaining that the mother was living with her father who sexually abused her. And so he's concerned that his daughter living in that same home would be subjected to this. And the judge says on the stand, this baby is only six months the baby does not get overnights with her father. And I said, but your honor, the tender years doctrine has been eliminated. The father should have time with his daughter. Judge says, I don't care what that says. Fathers do not get overnights with their daughter at a young age. This to me was like, 
I, I can't tell you how many times in law school I almost quit law school because I'm like, what's on paper just consistently doesn't match the application of things. So if you were like to go into like historical leaders and say, whose ideology do you most align with? Uh, mine is Dr. King and not the fake Dr. King that people try to make him out to be, but the real readings of Dr. King. And I firmly believe that you cannot transform people's hearts by legislating their hearts, right? If you want to change the society, you have to change the hearts and minds of the people. And then the laws should be consistent with the nature of the, the community or the people that are there. And so absolutely agree with happened. you, by the way. Thank you. So as I thought about it, what I realized is that part of the problem is that there are certain groups of people who are making all the rules for everyone else, but they're not listening to everybody. So they have their own value systems, their own perspective, their own point of view, and they're creating all the rules and then they're trying to legislate behavior. Well, we're going to make these rules and everybody's going to follow it. And that's not human nature. That's not, that's not how we work. When I got my master's degree, I had to write my theory of crime. Like, why do people commit crimes? And some people say, oh, it's inherent. It's their nature, blah, blah, blah. My statement was, we are all inherently self-interested. Everybody commits crimes at some point, Right. Really what we think about is we do a cost-benefit analysis of whether there's more benefit from breaking the rules to benefit myself or not more of a benefit. But I think that you have less crime when the laws are consistent with the hearts and values in this, of the people that are subject to those laws. Absolutely. That's the way that I look at it. Yeah. I thought what was happening with the judges is that the judges would see these legislators write these rules and they're like, I'm looking at these people every day. This is what I believe. This is my value system. Nobody else is in my courtroom so they can appeal me, but that's going to be hard for them anyway. So I'm going to do what I want because I know that these parents can't appeal. I, I could go on about how broken, not broken, because it's doing exactly what it was designed to do, but how messed up the system is. Just with your introductory comment, and this is why you were the first person I thought of as a guest, right? Like, could you already linked three systems? So the legal system, the education system, family law, and to some extent, the criminal justice system. And you also just said the system is doing exactly what it was designed to do. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? So I need to back up by stating I love mathematics. I was a math teacher before I became a lawyer. And so it's funny to me how people hated math, but we use mathematical terms all the time and don't connect it to math, right? We talk about the legal system. We talk about all of the, the criminal justice system. But if you understand from a mathematical perspective what a system is, it's a set of rules usually with variables embedded in those rules, but it's meant to get a particular outcome based on those rules. So when I put, you know, the two inside for that X, then I'm going to get this thing. So, well, the better way is like, if I had a linear equation, then no matter what numbers I put in, I'm always going to get a line because that's a linear system, right? If I'm inside of a spherical system, I can change the numbers inside of that 
formula as much as I want, but at the end of the day, I'm always gonna get a sphere, right? So what we're dealing with in the United States, we talk about our government, which is a system. And so if you remember the scripture, you know the tree based on the fruits. So if I'm consistently seeing injustice in all these different categories, in housing, in education, in family, rate on a racial level, on an economic level, and I keep saying, oh, there's a problem here, there's a problem here, there's a problem here, I just have to tweak it. And every time you change the laws, you still get injustice. That means the system itself was designed with injustice embedded in it because you can't keep getting the same outcome at the end unless the system itself was designed for that particular outcome. So this is why I love talking with you because somehow, although you know, you're know you on the other side of the country, you and I always end up using the same metaphors when we talk. So the expression I use is that if you have an apple tree, that gives apple fruits, right? You can't take a basket of oranges, clip them on the tree or staple them on the tree and suddenly <laughs> call it an orange tree, right? I'm writing this book called Digging Up the Seeds of White Supremacy. And one of the main premises is that the policy changes we generally talk about as systems change are actually just pruning the tree. Yeah. And if you prune the tree and you change the shape of the branches, you're not gonna get another fruit. You're still going to get the nope. same fruit. And it's going to get more of that fruit eventually because you're taking care of the tree and making it work better, right? And so this is how I, as an example of this, right? So many people are talking about, I want to, so before I make this statement, I want a disclaimer. Black women, very proud to be a Black woman, right? When we talk about issues of race right now, it seems to fall only into the category of black and white people. I do not live in that space. I see the injustice of Native Americans. I see the injustice of the, the bad immigrants versus the good immigrants, right? So you can immigrate from this country in Europe and, and you're cool, or let's just use Asia. You immigrate from like China or Japan, you're okay. But you roll up in here from Cambodia or um, Laos, I don't know if we want to give you a visa, right? So for me, in my head, like when I look at racism, I look at it from that, all of those issues. Okay, so with that being said, I'm going to go plot myself into a Black category for a second. So we look at slavery in America, right? We ended slavery. People are listening to me, so you can't hear me quote unquote ended slavery. Then what did we come to? We went to reconstruction, we modified it. So people are still working the land, um, not really getting paid for it. Uh, you know, house slaves now move to just cleaning the house, but no real change, no real adjustments. We struggle, right? Then black people say, okay, we're going some of us are gonna try to do our own thing. Oh, you wanna do separate but equal? Cool. We're gonna live in our own little space. We're gonna be separate. Then we will try to take care of ourselves and y'all take care of yourselves. Y'all do your thing. We do our thing. They look over at us and say, wait, you're thriving. That's not how the system was designed. So you're not supposed to thrive in your oppression. So we now need to, to shift this around because we need to make sure that there is always a bottom class battling against each other, right? So we slavery, we went to our reconstruction. Um, anybody who wrote 
you're not supposed to thrive being separate. And so then we have yes. the burning down of Black Wall Street and Rosewood, like that's exactly. what you're alluding to, right? Oh, yes, so, that's what I'm alluding like, to. That's where just... white mob violence started. Like it started yeah. because oh. African-Americans were thriving in separate spaces in the separate but equal of the post-Civil War, right? Like, so the funny part is, I, just with that, I would love for everyone to just study Atlanta's history. Just, just... Georgia, right? So right now people are like, yay, Atlanta saved our lives. Atlanta's tried to save us many times and then Atlanta got burned down every time they did. So black people would start to thrive. Ninth, eight, Atlanta, 1906, um, African-Americans ran most of the political, they basically were running Georgia, right? So they had gotten all of this political power. Whenever black folks start to thrive a little bit, People say, oh, the white, you know, white racists come along and try to take them down a peg, right? In my head, the way that I actually see it is there are those who are in power who want to maintain their power structure. And they, when they want the losers to have someone else to fight against, to not look at them thriving, right? So white folks way back in the day, there was the rich land only white, white men right? Not all white people owned land. There were poor white people, right? So when the Irish decided to come over here, guess what? They was the black folk, right? So they couldn't get any jobs. They were treated like trash. You had the Italians when they came over and they were like, Absolutely. oh, they suck too. We're going to beat them up. But the rich land on the white folks said, wait a minute, if these guys start looking at us and want to take what we got, we're going to have a problem. So we need to create a system by which they will never challenge our authority. Hey, there's this, you see those people over there? Their skin color is darker than you. Hate them. Don't hate us. We got all your stuff. We're oppressing you. We're taking everything away from you. But they're actually taking it away because there's only a little bit here. And so either we could give it to you this little bit or we can give it to them. So kill them so you don't come and take ours. That's how I see. All right. So and while you're talking, I just want to say this because you did it with gestures. You're actually showing the three tiers, yes. which is yes. is the three, three tiers. tiers that the United States still runs on, which is this upper yes. tier that is the wealth that we don't see, right, or that yes. we see in terms of celebrities, but we think they owned it, like. We don't actually see, right. I would argue that celebrities aren't actually the real wealth. The real wealth, we actually don't even see it. You know, these are the folks who- Yeah, uh, those are the who ones wear, who, who- Who wear a pair of jeans that cost like $500 and, you know, t-shirts with a couple of holes in them that they paid another $300 yes. for, you know? It's like, yeah. these are the folks who are dressing down. So we don't actually see them most of the time. Yes. And then there's the poor, the poor whites at the bottom. Actually, I would say poor whites and poor folks of color at the bottom. And then there's this middle class who are predominantly white and who basically are investing all their time either in monitoring, policing folks of color, or distancing themselves from folks of color and saying, yeah, 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 we're not bad as those folks over there. And then the white and, poor and, are also separate, like saying we're not as bad as those folks over there. And by those two classes always looking at poor folks of color, they never look up. 
they never look beyond it, what, what's holding the whole system think, in place. Yes. And if I had a, a pyramid, right, and you have the first tier and that's really small at the top and then the second tier and then the third tier and you can split the third tier up however you want. And, and some people would take that bottom tier and then split it in half and then cut other parts into it as well. But they're still at the bottom, however you want to describe it. I feel like that, you know, everybody's fighting with each other and you're all in the same boat at the bottom trying to get to the top, which the top of it is only taking you to the middle, right? Yes. <laughs> so, yes. Right. Yeah. So, but in my head though, the fun the I shouldn't call it funny because it actually saddens me. But what I find interesting in all of this is that the top tier of people, they basically own all the land. They control anything related to land. And they're not just doing it in America. They're actually like touching the rest of the world too. You know, creating wars in other nations, whatever they can to make sure they maintain power structure. They did it before the United States existed. They continue to do it now that it exists. And they just maintain their little safe space up here. And everybody else at the bottom just keeps fighting each other. Just like you said, no one ever looks up. Sort of get back to the larger point because it sounds like I went on a tangent, but I really wasn't. Is that what happens is we keep changing the form of it, but it's still the same thing, right? So we integrated the schools, Black children, white children, all children of all races go to school together. Now that they're all mixed together, we're going to make it easier for some children to go to better schools, right? Better private schools, better, you know, this, that, and the other. And then we're just going to make it shitty. We're going to intentionally sabotage the education of those people so that we maintain that structure. And then you move up to, we talk about the criminal justice reform. Okay, and then we're going to throw a whole bunch of people in prison. So now I feel like we have all of these different groups in silos fighting for equity and justice without realizing that they're all fighting for the same thing. But they never come together because they've fallen into this lie that there's only a little justice available. So we have to choose who gets it. So for these couple of years, LGBTQ is going to get some justice. For these couple of years, the Black folk will get a little bit of justice. For these few years, and then we get mad. I've heard Black people say, well, Native Americans got casinos. And I'm like, really? So you, you're saying that casinos is a good payback for genocide, stripping people of their culture, taking their land, and then give them droplets when they're still making money off of them, but that's cool with you because at least they got their reparations. Like, no, <laughs> we all fighting the wrong people. I just want to add a piece to what you were saying. So I love what you said about like making the parallel with the mathematical systems, right? That you literally have equations working together at the same time that are out to create a certain result, right? So literally a set of rules that creates a set of results. And that I just wanted to highlight that the whole piece around not seeing the higher part of the American population 
And one thing that always surprises people, right? The upper 5% of the American population is only those who earn $250,000 or more, right? That's just 5%. Like, and $250,000 a year is not what it used to be, right? Like, that's not a humongous amount of money. That's the top 5%. If you have a family and are like earning 250,000 or more, you're in the top 5% of the American population. And I say that because I think there's a huge fiction in America of people call themselves middle class while they're in the 5% of the population, right? Like, no, that's not a middle class. By American standards, that's downright rich. Even if you don't feel rich because we're in the whole debit like everybody's in debt complex insanity, you may not feel rich, but in fact, you are in the upper 5% of the American population if you earn $250,000 or more. So I'm just going to sit with that. And then the 1%, of course, has the outrageous numbers, right? Like earning millions and millions, but that's only the 1%. The 4% like doesn't have that much and yet is the richest of America. I wanted to add to what's funny about that is that I was at city council in Philadelphia and they were trying to put forth this $15 um, bill, $15 minimum wage bill. And so I just did the math and I said, wait a minute, you're like, oh my gosh, people are in poverty at $8, you know, an hour. We want to move it to 15 by 2024. And I said, wait a minute. So the national average, $60,000 is considered middle class, but you can't even really live with a family. $60,000 is good for a single person with no debt, right? And that should make you a middle class person, right? So I did the math for them of $15 an hour, like on the record. And I said, you're telling me in 2024, you think that $15 an hour is going to be better than eight? It's the same thing. <laughs> like essentially, they will literally be earning the eight dollars that they're earning in uh, 2018 is fifteen dollars an hour in 2024. The city council person was like, "Well, this is the best that we can do, and and it's great." And I was like, "Yeah, no." So go ahead. I'm sorry. I just had to interrupt. No, that's so okay. And it's great that you say that because like the self-sufficiency index in Philadelphia is I think $20 an hour. Like that's what it actually takes to be self-sufficient in Philadelphia given our housing prices. So I just wanted to mention that what you described, which is this, this state where the poor are doing picking order at each other, the middle class is distancing itself from the poor, and no one sees what the real rich are up to as they steal us blind of everything we own. Like that was actually created legally after the Bacon's Rebellion of 1676, where whites and blacks were actually together because segregation didn't exist yet. Poor whites and poor blacks basically opposed the mainstream landowners And we're basically saying, yo, we can't live this way, right? So we're so poor that we can't live and we're going to unite fronts against you. And, you know, we need to be treated better. And then after that, there are a series of laws that get passed that start literally putting on paper 
that whites are treated better than blacks. And it's done yes. with subtle things like whites can't be lynched anymore. Whites can't be branded. Whites can't get death penalty or can't be imprisoned for life. Like there are these like little differences that start distinguishing this middle class, this white, predominantly white middle That's class right. from poor people of color and black folk. And so that was intentional. That was built in when you were saying they wrote a set of rules. Exactly. Stamped from the beginning. You're showing me. Absolutely. Oh my God. Love it. Love it. So I'm curious. So we co-wrote this article. It was based mm -hmm. on an idea that you've had that you've been movement building around and conceptualizing for some time. I support it with certain aspects of the article, but this is definitely like your idea, which is getting people together to write a new constitution. Tell me about that. Based on what I just said about systems, right? So once you design a system, you get the outcome that the system is designed to give you, right? And so the very foundation, so we, we're fighting all these different injustices, right? We have different groups and different silos all saying, pay attention to me, respect my right. And it's a part of American culture, generally. I mean, this grows out of it, that we believe we have a right to things and there are things that we're supposed to, like we just feel like we have rights to everything. So here's my thought process. You have all of these different groups who are constantly fighting and saying, respect me. I want to be treated with dignity, with justice, with fairness, and I need to be heard. I want to be heard. The system is not designed for everyone to be heard. The system as it currently sits, it's not designed for everyone to have a voice. And let's think about it, right? When we drafted the original constitution, it was drafted only by rich land-owning white men. And I'm a property attorney and I could go down the road of like, what property really means in America, but just keep in mind, we have rich land only white men who are designing the system by which all of the infrastructures will be created. And yes, some of them were slave owners, but I often try to remind people that there were abolitionists in that room as well. And they were looking, I kind of love the constitution because I love the fact that it starts off we the people in order to form a more perfect union. And I remind people who criticize the constitution to think about it as number one, they didn't have to have that language in there at all. Two, even in putting the language, they could have put it at the end, they could have put it in the middle, but they were trying to tell you something in the beginning that after all of this fighting, when I go to the Constitution Center, I enjoy the fact that when I found out that they shot each other, they punched each other in the face, like they were like, no, I'm right. No, I'm right. No, I'm right. Does that sound familiar to where we are now? Okay. So yeah. So like, this is the way things are supposed to be. And even though they excluded a lot of people in that room, they did not all stand for the same thing, but they said, we want something that can stand and thrive and last for a long time. So in my mind, if we want to fix the outcomes of what we're dealing with right now at this very moment, we have to go to the foundation, right? We have to go to the start of it. We have to go to what created where we are now and fix that. We cannot 
and I mean this with all my heart, I do not believe that we could try to fix and tweak by amending the U.S. Constitution because it was based on a particular value system that excluded the perspectives of large groups of people. If we want people to follow the rules, if we want less crime, if we want more equity, if we want more justice, all of those things have to be considerations in the conversation, which means we would have to go back just like they moved from the Articles of Confederation. They went there to meet to amend it. They came out with a constitution. If it takes people meeting to amend the constitution, they have to come out with a brand new one. We have to start off with the questions, the premise. What do we value in America? What are like common core sets of values that no matter what the color of your skin, no matter what economic status you have, no matter what state you're in, on the basic premise, what do we value? So as an example of what I mean is that we have no language in the Constitution specifically that talks about protection of children. We know that this is something that no matter what color, race, creed, whatever, generally speaking, Americans are appalled by any harm that comes to young children. We think of them as innocent. So this is how we fight over abortion, right? So some people want to build the way that we get around the language of abortion for those people who support the concept is what they say is that it is not a child, right? And then the other side is saying it is a child. And what I say is let's get away from that language. What are we actually saying we both value? The thing that the abortionists and the anti-abortionists have in common is they actually both value children, which is why the abortionists are saying it's not a child, right? Then we can go through all of the other things, but what I'm saying is from a constitutional perspective, from a value, if we go in and find out what we all value and then build rules and systems off of there, we would have less fighting in our country. We really would get to a lot more equity because we would have very different conversations my friend uses it all the time. He's in his 70s. He calls it a page zero premise. And in mathematics and geometry, um, before you can create a rule statement, you have to write down what are your premise. And what I'm saying is that we need to back up and create new rules. But before we create the rules, we have to talk about what we really value and then build the rules from there. I believe we will genuinely get to a much more equitable system especially because we won't agree, right? And so we have to argue and fight with each other. But in doing that, we'll also find out other people's perspectives. And let me give as an example. I grew up in the church, Christian church, non-denominational, strong opinions about LGBTQ because that's what I, I grew up in, right? But it was through relationships with people and understanding I went from... This person who was staunchly, I also, it would have been the same thing. I went from a perspective of someone like, oh, if you have an abortion, you're going to hell, to like, I need to rethink my perspective on that. And you know how that came? Through conversation with people who believe the opposite of me, right? And the same thing with LGBTQ, as more and more of my friends began to reveal to me that they were gay or lesbian, or I don't really have any trans friends, but... Um, the more people that 
began to reveal that to me, I had to take a step back on my value system and ask, what is it? Because I didn't want to lose my friendship and say, oh, this person sucks, right? Like they're a terrible person because I love this person. So then I had to ask myself, if this is true, can both of these things be true at the same time? Or do I have to reevaluate my definition? And I think by us coming back to the table for the constitution, our far rights, our far lefts, our people in the middle, all of those sitting at the table together, discussing value systems, we can actually come up with a nation that is not divided. I think that it's designed for division as it is right now. So I'm curious, like, you know, we've talked about, you and I have talked like separately about the uprising in on January 6th. And I know you're like, always super, super in the loop in terms of what's happening in politics at the time, right? So I know that when you say we can find common ground, you are not being naive, nor are you pro-status quo, because I know you to be neither. No, right? not at all. Generally, when people talk about common ground, they're bastardizing yeah. it. Like they're talking yeah. about yeah. saying either radical shut the hell up, or they're saying like some shallow thing that we can agree on, you know, like we all need to breathe air, but there's nothing substantial. Although, yes, yes. I mean, given climate change and everything, maybe we all need to breathe air is not shallow. Maybe that's really, <laughs> right. really important, right? But I'm curious. Right. So given that I know that about you, that I know that when you speak about common ground, you're talking about it both from depth and not naivete and yes. from actually having really, really indulged with both sides of these arguments. I'm curious, what are these common ground like values or principles that you see that Americans could rally around? Because I think right now folks are so used to being divided, like we've forgotten that we agree on anything at all. So I'm just curious, right. so, some of the things that come to mind for you? So practically speaking, I would say, you know, the International Declaration of Human Rights. Most people haven't heard of it. But what people don't realize is that America was kind of a part of drafting it. We just refused to sign it. So one of the things that I gave as an example is, is children. And I don't know if people know, Charles Hamilton Houston, who is the mentor of Thurgood Marshall, the reason that you have Brown versus Board of Education and even that argument really was the brainchild of Charles Hamilton Houston. Which is not the Hamilton of the musical. Just no, 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 no. We're talking about different times. Yes. Zones, just yes, just yes. to clarify. A Black man who is considered a social engineer. And he was a professor at Howard University, a law professor. He had been in the military. He was one of those people who was trying to be like, you know, I'm, this is not my business. This racial stuff, I'm, I'm going to stay out of it. Come out of the military and was treated like every other black man on the street. So goes to law school and says, I got to change the system, right? You know, I, I have to get into the fight. And so he basically mentored and trained a mob of black lawyers who went out all across the country and were like suing in every state all at the same time. And they were suing, okay, we're separate, but we're not equal. You said separate, but equal. So we're going to hold you to your own language, separate 
but mm-hmm. equal. And they were suing so much that it, it went all the way up. You get Brown versus Board of Education. And they were like, all these Negro lawyers are getting on our nerves. Let's just change the law because I'm tired of them suing. So I brought up Charles Hamilton Houston as an example of someone who recognized he was saying, how do I attack this broken system to make real change? You know what? The one thing that people can usually get around, even if they disagree, children. There's a certain point we're not okay with this, right? So there are are particular things that people are not comfortable with and what we did in race and even how they justified racism. People were okay with a human owning a human. So how do they justify it? Oh, black people are not human. Change the narrative. This is why I love like George Orwell's 1984 because it really points out how important language is and by changing the definition of something is much easier to control people and to get them to think a particular way. Anyone who's ever heard me or met me, I kind of use the same statements all the time because they're very much a part of who I am. But like particularly in 1984, the Ministry of Love was in charge of war. The Ministry of Peace was the place they went to torture people. And the point in 1984 was to say, if you change the definition of something and you really embed that in people and get them to forget the original definition, you can control them and get them to do anything. And so I think inherent in a lot of human beings are like sex trafficking right now. So If you brought this up and you have a conversation and you say, are you okay with someone stealing someone's daughter from another country and then going to another country and then they have to be used as a a sex slave? Are you all right with this? Most people like, oh no, you know, I'm appalled to that. Okay, let's make that a law, right? So what I mean is there are things that we are always gonna be divided on. That is very true. But what people don't realize in America is the media benefits from continuing to perpetuate this idea that America is split into two, one all the way on one side, the other all the way on the other side, when there is all of this data to show that most of the United States of America is purple, not red or blue. So if most Americans are actually living in the purple, that purple right there, that's your US constitution. It's not the red and the blue, it's the purple. The problem is that the media is benefiting from getting us to believe it's one or the other. I keep talking about history, but let's use something very practical right now. So January 6th, the insurrection. You had this initial video. So on January 6th, January 7th, January 8th, you consistently see these videos of police officers who look like they are allowing these insurrectionists to do whatever they want inside the Capitol. And you see the black man running away and they kept showing the the video of him running away. And then social media, the news media, what did they keep saying? Well, if they had been black, they wouldn't allow this to happen. You see how the police were supporting the insurrectionists. They weren't really fighting the insurrectionists. They were allowing it to happen because white bodies matter and black bodies don't matter. That's what the media said, right? Then all of a sudden, this side story starts to come out about Adam Goodman and that this black officer who looks like 
He's just running away from the mob and saying, okay, I'm not going to attack you. I remember the comments as it was happening. Well, why doesn't he shoot them? There was a black person, he would have shot him. That's all of the things. And then you get this other story of he knew that they were very close to being able to get to their goal. So he was leading them away. That story was three days after the fact, or four day, three or four days after. So they've already built up this black versus white, black lives matter. It would have been different, blah, 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 blah. Then you hear the story of what Adam actually did and immediately turns, he's a hero. He's amazing. It's so easy how the media is being used to manipulate. But what if we had a media that on January 6th, they had asked the questions that they're asking right now about the officers who were fighting and who were getting beat up instead of the conversation only being Black people versus the officers, which is what they quickly tried to turn it into to justify different languages, what if the conversation was really about reporting? We don't know the context of this, but here's what we're seeing. We're getting this video of this officer running away. What is going on? Is he being overwhelmed by the crowd? Is he doing it? Just imagine if the conversation had been different there. What kind of conversation could we, across color, across race, across context, could have been having on January 6th with each other if the media had reported it differently. But they benefit. And then I think about, we were talking about the 1%. Who owns the media? We don't have a public media in America. Someone is benefiting from keeping us divided, right? And, and the media is a part of that. That's just my opinion. So we wrote this article about rewriting the Constitution and what it would take. And we came up with a timeline together of 20 years. And some of that is based on like my understanding of doing community organizing and movement building and consensus building and what it would actually take, right? But one of the things that surprised me most is that you said, I think it would take only two years to actually write a new constitution. And it's based on this concept that we're more purple than we are blue, blue and red. Yes. And so I'm curious yes. to, if you could just say a little bit more about, you know, this bold stand you have that I remember, us, I think you said it would take a year, let's just do two, just to say it, but actually writing the constitution is not what's complicated. It's aligning everything Correct. else to it that takes we talked about, I think, Correct. two years to movement build and decide who was going to be on the committee. And then the bulk of the time, the 16 years is just really to align everything else. Like, yeah. that's what's complex. Yes. That writing a new constitution in alignment with values that we all share is actually not complicated. So tell me a little bit more about that. One of the reasons that it's simple is that First of all, you have a number of nations who have used the U.S. Constitution as a means to build theirs and make theirs better. So if we stop being so American <laughs> and we decide to say, hey, let's look at what other nations have already done, it's sort of how they write bills now, right? They look at what has already been drafted and then you tweak the language, remove it, the South African constitution, even though in practicality, 
it's not being adjudicated or working out as it was planned. The language of it, I think that a lot of Americans, if you really listen to what people are saying, not how people are twisting the meaning. So let me back up and say this. I used to live in Japan. When I, I moved to Japan, not knowing the language at all, I knew nothing and then tried to learn it while I was there. Not recommended, but that's what I did. Okay. Probably works for every country except Japan. <laughs> so, you know, I started developing friends and things like that. And one of the things that I learned during this experience and this was that I started to be able to communicate very, very well with people who I spoke broken Japanese and they were speaking broken English or sometimes they were speaking English and I was speaking English because I stopped listening to the words that they were using and I tried to understand the spirit of what they were trying to communicate. Um, because everybody has different definitions for different words. But when you listen past the words, and I think that oftentimes we're arguing, we start arguing over the word choice that a person is using because you wouldn't use those same words, but we don't listen to what the person is truly saying, okay? So with that being said, you have the Indian constitution, the South African constitution, our constitution, different states have updated their constitutions, their state constitutions to reflect a lot of the values that sit with their state. So what we could do is take all of the different state constitutions and say, what do we see that is common? And let's take this back to the people and, and say, what do you want in it? What don't you want in it? So that part is not the difficulty. The difficulty is like I said before, the Dr. King statement, you cannot legislate behavior, you can't legislate hearts. So the reason it is gonna take time is because we have to learn to trust each other. And right now we have been taught not to trust each other. And it is it's being bred into us. And actually I'm a little bit bothered right now. Not that I don't want black people to thrive, I do. But I do not like how these corporations and the government right now is like, oh, they protested last year. We're just gonna throw black people in every important position as we can. And hey, now we have equity in America, right? Oh, we're gonna throw some money here. We're gonna throw some money here, but we're not changing the, the power structure. Just putting a black person in a position of power does not change the power structure. <laughs> and, and anyone Hallelujah. who believes that is a fool, right? It's just ridiculous to me that people think that. So, and they're like, oh, but they'll hire more black people. Okay, but we're still no. Americans. Right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. As an organizational <laughs> development person, no. And then we white folks are like experts in undermining the leadership of folks of color. So they don't necessarily hire other folks of color. Actually, oftentimes folks of color get so ambushed that they give up either by leaving or just will like, fine, I'm fine being the only black person. I don't want to deal with more of this. What I'm concerned about is that by doing that, it's sort of like when President Obama got elected. It's like a black man is president. Now we have no race issues in America, right? Yeah. Like literally people exactly. were saying that stupidness. So anyway, my perspective is the writing is not difficult because we have enough language out there 
to support it. And I, I gave um, you, Rita, an example earlier is that, you know, you have a lot of people who are really concerned about climate change and environmental justice. And I said, people don't know in the Pennsylvania Constitution, there are protections for the environment in the Pennsylvania Constitution. Um, we can use some of that language. That's not the problem. We just have to get people to believe that we can be on the same page. And let me bring it a little bit more practical. So I ran for office in 2019 and I had a very diverse district. So one side of the district, this is just by registration, forget about ideology. The top portion of the district was Republican. The bottom portion of the district was Democrat and the middle was independent. So I had like America <laughs> in the district that I was running for, right? People kept telling me all right off the bat, you're a black woman, you know, you're democratic leaning, you are never going to get those Republican votes. Republicans are never gonna vote for you, right? So what did I do? I started hanging out at the Republican bar in Roxborough where most of the people would have been. And I started having conversation with people. People would say, you know, yeah, you know, I'm a, a Republican and I feel, you know, this way about things. So I would ask them. So I can't think of one right now, but I would take something that's very traditionally considered to be a Republican idea, right? Something that was supposed to fall into being a Democrat. But I would ask this person, what do you think about this particular thing? But I would ask it outside of the normal context of when it's spoken. And repeatedly, people would say, no, I, I totally agree with that, right? I'm trying to think of a really good example of one where I'm in the bar and the person who's working with me, she's on my campaign team. She's like, don't waste your time on that person. Like, we need to keep moving on and go. And I said, no, this person will be a constituent. This person's voice matters. I want to hear it. So I start asking him these different questions and I ask him about one topic, another topic, another topic. And then I said, you said that you're really hardcore Republican, but you sound like an independent to me. And he says, oh yeah, I am. But like I'm registered Republican, right? And repeatedly I would run into people like that over and over again, where you would ask them about their ideology, their personal way that they thought about things. And then once you did that, they're like, oh, yeah, we agree. I had a Republican guy, this older man who's voted Republican his entire life. And he was saying, well, what do you think about this? He decided he wanted to test me on, on different topics. And I said to him, see, I think that everything is nuanced. I think that it's like people want to make it very simple, but we need to look at each individual thing very separately because Sometimes you overreach when you're trying to fix it for everybody. And the guy goes, huh, I think so too, but no one ever says that who's running for office. And he said, you know what? I could vote for you. And that's the difference. I chose to have a conversation with a person. I did not choose to fight over Democrat or Republic over a category. I had a conversation with a person. Right. I didn't talk about ideology. I talked about his heart. What is interesting to you? I think that if we did that, it's easy to get to a constitution. The problem is we have been indoctrinated with this idea of us versus them. They're on this side. I'm on this side. But our constitution says we, the people, not us, 
and those people, right? It's we the people. And if we can get Americans, I think that's the 18 years. Sort of getting people to shift from I or us to we. And if you do that, it's going to be easy to write a constitution. Thank you so much for being with us today, Carla. Any last thoughts? And how do people get in touch with you? My last thought is, I really believe we can form a more perfect union. I do. I think that I think that we all, all of us should, um, ye without sin cast the first stone, right? So I think that we should all step back and take an evaluation of ourselves and then ask ourselves, what do I want my nation to look like? And how do I help us get there? What conversations can I have? What role can I play in helping us get to the nation that I'd like to see? Rich, poor, black, Puerto Rican, white, whatever it is, I want to be a part of this process. Um, and so I can be reached on Instagram at Carla underscore cruel. So it's K-A-R-L-A underscore C-R-U-E-L, cruel like me. I'm on Facebook, same name. I'm on Twitter, same name. <laughs> um, I have a law practice called Legal Empowerment Group. You can reach me there. But if you just say, you know, I really want to be a part of this, um, you can always just send me a text message, 215-629-6349. Thank you for being with us today, Carla. Really appreciate your insight and the way your brain spans different environments. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic. <laughs>